Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm not a depressive person. I mean, I'm not... I wouldn't describe myself as perky, but I don't think of myself as a depressive. I'm, you know, I sort of fuel myself with uh, mostly rage. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Varvet International with me, your host Christopher Triumph. And my guest today is, well, one of the world's best movie directors, David Fincher. Uh, and he and I will talk in just a while, but I'd like to start with presenting this show's sponsor. And today it's a bit humid with about 65% chance of rain, so I'd better wear my Statterheim raincoat. And one of the amazing things with that coat is that it fits both with a formal look like a suit or with a more relaxed one, like a track suit. And the quality is fantastic. It's not the cheapest raincoat around, but then again, you merely look after it for future generations. So find your favorite at stutterheim.com or at one of the 300 stores around the world that carries these garments. Thanks, Stutterheim. Yes, guest today is movie director David Fincher. And if you can't really place him, maybe it helps if I mention some of his work. He directed the fantastic thriller Seven, the instant classic Fight Club. He did Panic Room, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which, by the way, mostly is filmed here in Stockholm, Sweden. And now he's here to promote Gone Girl, his new movie that premieres any day. And uh, this movie is based on a huge book with the same uh, name. Well, it was a huge success, the book is, and it's pretty normal in size, I would say. And the movie stars uh, Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. I just saw it and it's very interesting in more than one ways. I think it's sort of a comment on America in recess. And it's also very cool that you don't really like any of the characters in a way. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I just want to mention that the movie's uh, music and sound is made by Trent Reisner from The Nine Inch Nails and Atticus Ross. But David Fincher had a life before he became this super director. He actually started out by doing music videos in the 80s for acts like Michael Jackson, Paula Abdul, Madonna and Rolling Stones to name a few. We'll get to that also in just a few seconds in this fairly short but focused interview. So let's roll the tape. Mr. Fincher, yeah. 
an honor to meet you. Oh, thank you very much. Instead of regular sound checks, I tend to uh, ask my guests to uh, describe the settings for us. Oh, where we are? Yes, please. We're in a very beautiful hotel room that has a Nike clog in its in a case. It's a very Dutch strange. clog. It's not a Swedish one. It's a oh, no, exactly. No. It's, no. it's the Dutch They would never version. go for that kind of flagrant self-promotion. And we're in Stockholm? Yep. Where you are for promotion? Yeah, for a one-day promotion, but I, I was actually here for nine days just uh, riding a bike and going to dinner and wandering around. Aha, uh-huh. so you've, you've stayed here for like 10 days? Yeah, yeah, I've been yeah. here for, I, I was here for almost a week, and a, a week and a half. Okay, how come? I like it. Yeah? It's beautiful, it's a beautiful city. And we somehow managed to be here at the most perfect week. It was, you know, it's just that last time we were here on Dragon Tattoo was, you know, seven days a week, 14 hours a day, and we never got to really enjoy the city. So I came here with my family and we wandered around. All right. And are they still here? Yeah. um, My mother left this morning and my daughter leaves in an hour or so. All right. And my wife is back at the hotel. Okay. I understand. You share background with two of my previous guests in Swedish version of this podcast, Johan Renk and Jonas Åkerlund. Really? Yeah. And you guys all sort of started out with music videos. Yeah, I think I was a little ahead ahead of the... They were the Swedish New Wave. So I was a little more of a sellout whore long before the Swedish New Wave in, in music videos. But, you know, obviously I know their work and enjoy it and all of it. Yeah, and you still keep contact with Jonas. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually both. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you have something in common except for the obvious in your... CV with the two of them? Yeah. No, I think that they're. I think that what they do is. I mean, it's also very different from each other. But no, I think you know. I, I, my world was, or my video commercial world was more informed by sort of the late seventies and not so much. And I also think that you know probably the you know what I would consider to be sort of the Swedish movement in in music videos was a reaction against a lot of the more overt commerciality of, of, of the work that we were doing in L.A. in the early 80s. Because most of it, one of the things that we were kind of, I mean, Propaganda Films, which is a, a company that I started with three partners who were also directors, Dominic Senna, Greg Gold, and Nigel Dick. Part of the founding principles of it was, was the notion of sort of commingling. Why is it that if people are spending the kind of money that they were spending at that time on music videos, why shouldn't they be like a commercial? That was sort of our, our look. It was, I, I don't want to say it was content-free, but it was less about the content and more about sort of the packaging and, and being... And I, and I think that certainly Jonas's work, I remember the... Madonna stuff that he was doing was was really outre and not and not about sort of the cosmetic side of things, which was all the more stunning. So I think it was kind of a reaction to, against what we were doing, and more power to it. When he moved into feature films and, and so forth, when I asked him about what he brought from from his previous work, was I mean he he talks a lot about rhythm. Mm-hmm. I realized yesterday that your new film is sort of rhythmic in a way that it's super effortless. Could you say that? 
that may be attributable to the fact that Atticus and Trent, who scored you know the last three movies that I've been lucky enough to make, we have a very different working process. It's not so much about deciding what the picture is and then kind of forging sounds that coincide with what's happening in the picture. Oftentimes, you know, I have so much respect for for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that I don't I would never go to them and say this is the final picture because I always think that they bring something to them the atmosphere to the pace of the world around the characters. And so they will start I mean, they started writing music really before we had a final cut of the movie. I showed them about 40 minutes when we returned from Missouri. We were in L.A., and I showed them about 45 or 50 minutes of the movie, the first sort of assembly. And then they just went off, and then they would just send tracks. I mean, and and not like two or three, but like 13. Like you would get an hour's worth of music. And then we would start sort of saying, well what's your intention here? And they would say, well, we didn't really know, but we feel like this sound has to be part of the landscape. We go, okay, landscape, all right, well, let's move this over into, let's move this under the water tower shot, and let's put this over. So it was, we sort of, it's not like a music video at all. I mean, in a music video, you get the song, and you make pictures, and you cut those pictures to that. And I've done that with them. We did that on social network. We did that with the, in the Hall of the Mountain King, where I just said to them, you need to take this piece of music and just do your best Wendy Carlos to it. And so they gave us a piece of music, and we just cut the pictures to it. But in both Dragon Tattoo, Dragon Tattoo, they were sending me music as I was shooting. I would get a little alert on my phone, and you know, and I would look, and there would be you know five new files from Trent, and I would plug in my headphones and on the van on the way to um, Sheila Ford's, and I would play music and and i would be driving up to the house we were shooting in and playing this music and going that's the music for driving up to the house (laughs) and so you it's not that it's it's not an indifferent process and it's not a sloppy process it's a but it's very much a, a process of i talk to them about what my hopes and aspirations and intentions are and then they respond and then they respond musically and then and then we take these things and we hone them together. So I'll say, I can actually make the sequence shorter now because you've actually found a rhythm that's much faster than what I had. So I'm going to take this now and squeeze it. I'm going to send it back to you. And then they'll look at it and go, okay, now we feel that there needs to be a transition that happens at this moment. I say, great, show it to me. And it's much more of a, it's like tennis. Yeah. <laughs> An yeah. organic process. Yeah, it is. A, it, it's, I think it can only happen in, in again, if you're thinking of music in its very classical use as underscore, I don't think you would go to these guys because I think that there's so much more than that. There's just, they have too much to offer. So I, I look at what they do sonically as, you know, they construct worlds. That's the thing that I loved about, uh, I've always loved about Nine Inch Nails was this, this aural envelope that's so broad and so deep and you kind of experience it in them there are very few people who stimulate your imagination and Trent's one of those people and and so to put a bridle on him and say you have to you have to follow only these pictures would be counterintuitive who are the other ones 
Well, I think, you know, when, you, when you're talking about, you know, I think it, you, you, they're everywhere. They're in CG. They're, you know, commercial makers. There are you know, the two guys that you, you mentioned. But there's, you know, I mean, Mark Romanek is a friend and a colleague and somebody who I look to and you know, Garth Davis. There are, a lot, there are people out there who are doing things that are above and beyond and beyond the side of the frames, mm. beyond the headset on your head, beyond the mp4 file you know they just it's not just a melody line it's you're up to your eyeballs in it so what you're saying is that when you work with these people you have to sort of update the image that you have of the end result i start with an idea of the end result let me put it in a different way there's a fallacy in how one designs a motion picture experience and i think the fallacy is that it's a wind tunnel tested, extremely technical, scientific experiment. And really, that's not the case. There's a lot of technical knowledge and a lot of technical expertise that goes into making a film. But remember, the ultimate takeaway of a film is emotional. You just saw a dream and it either affected you or it didn't. And And, you know, as, as Louis B. Mayer once said, you know, the beauty of the movie business is that the, the only thing that the buyer gets for their cost of admission is a memory. And so memories are evocative, and they're evocative because they work on, a, on an emotional plane. So you can have all the best intentions. You know, you can, you can, you can work backwards from a, an impeccable blueprint to bring in an audience, hopefully, to this place where they go oh i never imagined that that was going to happen or oh my god that's so funny or that's the saddest thing i've ever seen you're working toward that but they're going to have to meet you halfway you know that's the thing you can never plan on so when you're interfacing with a sound designer like ren kleiss or an editor like kirk baxter or or a cinematographer like jeff cronenworth you're not talking about people who are measuring things in terms of decibels or measuring things in terms of foot candles or measuring things in terms of, you know, feet and frames. You're talking about people who are measuring, they're projecting themselves into an experience and imagining an emotional response. So if that's the intention, then the idea of sitting back and saying, okay, now you know by 18 feet, six frames, we have to have a catharsis here. You know, it doesn't make any sense to talk to Trent Reznor that way. You kind of have to say to him, I'm hoping that this is where the other shoe drops. I'm hoping that this is where people begin to go, oh, he's not such a good guy. He might actually be, he might actually be a murderer. You want that. That's the discussion that you're having. You're, the discussion that you're having with all of the people that I'm lucky enough to work with is, what do we want to feel? How do we bring people we've never met to the same place all at the same time? you know, who all come from differing places in their lives and differing places in the, in the world. And we need to get them, you know, I've often talked about this. There's that amazing moment. I remember being nine years old and seeing a rear window and watching Raymond Burr put on a hat and a raincoat and take a giant suitcase out of his apartment in the middle of the night. And everyone in the theater at the exact same moment says, oh, he killed her. He cut her up and put her in a... Now I was nine years old. Like, wh- how how is that even in my, how is that even in part of my imagination? And But how we, did your parents let you watch that? <laughs> well, 
it was a good thing. I think in the end, I was, I'm extremely grateful to their lapse in judgment. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about taking people to a place where they, they get emotionally hit by the same technical presentation. And they feel the same thing in unison. But the thing is that you, you seem to be a little bit worried about if people think it's funny enough. One of the things that was interesting to me was I thought there was a very wry, not sarcastic, maybe sardonic sense of humor to the source material. And I, and I felt that Gillian had a very tongue-in-cheek presentation. And I really wanted to push that. I really felt that that was an important part of seeing this. If you're going to see this kind of terrible behavior... You know, it has to at least have a sense of humor about it. It can't be a... But we have had screenings. You know, I've screened the movie where people laughed, and I've screened the movie where nobody laughed. And you kind of go, as you watch it, you it's shocking. And I think it's about, oddly, it's about permission. You know, the movie has to create room. The marketing of the movie, the presentation of the movie has to create room for people to to have those feelings, to be able to look at something and go, this is absurd. This mm. is nuts. Why are they in a Doris Day movie? Like, how did this happen? Where did this come from? You know, and that's one of the things, one of the key casting questions in putting the, the movie together was who's going to play Desi? Because Desi has to be, he's not of this earth. You know, he's... I likened it to Claire Quilty in, in Lolita. It, it is a, it's an element of absurdity because, you know, this weird beatnik hipster, poet, journalist, dancer, it's not something that most people can go, oh, like Uncle Clem. You know, there's, there's not a lot of, you don't have those people, most people don't have them in their families or in their lives, have a Peter Sellers hanging around. So I was looking for somebody who was that kind of, energy that had that thing that you just go whatever he says if he says i should watch the tonys then i should watch the tonys you started filming really really early early on right you were like eight years old or something oh yeah making movies yeah, yeah. not movies i mean we, we were we, yeah i was just a dorky eight-year-old with a super eight camera i i didn't really make movies until i didn't really like kind of understand masters and over the shoulder and singles. I didn't really understand the stuff till I was in my teens, but I started playing around with, you know, shooting my sister with blank guns when, when I was very young and uh, doing sort of makeup effects and having all of my friends bleed orally and, and fall down steps. So I did a lot of that sort of goofy, you know, the kind of stuff that kids do when they're, when they're left unmonitored. When I look at your resume, it feels like you've always wanted to do movies. Or yeah, that, yeah, I mean, when it wasn't an option, it's not like... I, I mean, when I was making music videos, I didn't go to sleep at night weeping and saying I should be making movies. I, I knew that I was biding my time until somebody would give me an opportunity to, and unfortunately I, I jumped at the wrong opportunity. But no, I was... I mean, at the time it felt like a hellishly long period you know um, from from the time I was 22 till I was 28 I was making commercials and music videos and it seemed like I would never get an opportunity to, to make a feature film 
but it's only, it only six years. You know, it's not like I, I don't have a lot to complain about. It's like, but it did at the time. I felt like I felt when I was making music videos and, and commercials, like I was putting myself through film school. I, I was not. I wasn't doing it with the idea of this will be my legacy. I was doing it as as a way of experimenting and playing with techniques and ideas that that uh, that I was interested in. And you know, in retrospect, a lot of them <laughs> weren't that interesting, but some of them were kind of kind of cool and fun. And and I look back on that period and and you know, with semi sense of nostalgia. There were a lot of things about it that I, I met a lot of really interesting people. I worked with a lot of really interesting people. And a lot of them I'm still working with today. But um, truthfully, it was a kind of horrifying day when 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 MTV started putting the director's names. <laughs> I was shocked. What? I thought I was doing this. I thought I was able to do this in secret. But uh, I felt about it in a very different way than a lot of my cohorts can you tell me about your first job in the industry yeah i worked for a a local filmmaker in in marin county in san francisco bay area who was a very revered director who had been one of the first people to sort of stake a claim to northern california and and want to make cinema in out of hollywood and that was john cordy john cordy was partners with um, George Lucas and Francis Coppola in the first, I believe it was American Zoetrope, the, fir- the first Zoetrope incarnation. And they had a studio out in Stinson Beach or someplace like that. So growing up in, in the Bay Area, you know, these were the people that were around. Michael Ritchie was making movies. The, the Candidate was being filmed in Larkspur and The Godfather was being filmed in, in Ross and... THX was being filmed at the Marin Civic Center and in the early BART stations. And so there were a lot of film going on. And and John Cordy was one of the people. He did the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and Who Are the DeBolts and Why Do They Get 19 Kids? And he'd done some, I think he'd done a couple of studio pictures. I think he did the sequel to Love Story. But he was a guy who was hiring production assistants. And I went to move Xerox machines and take out the trash and so i worked there for a year year and a half and um i worked in the dark room i worked in uh doing effects animation and then doing effects photography and then doing storyboards for second unit and then doing second units so i was sort of like a general factotum and then i went from there to my roommate at the time was working at industrial light and magic and they were hiring and i went and got a job working on blue screen shooting go motion and then left there a couple of years later to direct music videos when did you realize that this was what you would like to do direct yeah i was eight yeah you were eight yeah okay yeah so you always knew i don't know that you always know i mean you certainly always cursed to go i you know i i couldn't really imagine I can't really imagine doing anything else. I, I joke about it, but it's it's really true. I don't have... You know, my parents always told me, make sure you have something to fall back on. <laughs> Still? I don't. I don't have anything to fall back on. No. No, I think they they finally... I think they've given up on uh, me ever having a reasonable fallback. When did they? 
Well, my father passed 11 years ago. So before that, so it was probably 15 years ago, they were finally... But again, you know, when you tell your parents that you're directing television commercials, you know, they... they I was convinced that my parents thought I was doing like, come on down to Waterbed Warehouse, you know, it's like our car dealerships, you know, that that's what... I think that that's what they thought I was doing. They didn't know, they don't, they didn't really understand that when you, you know, do commercials for... Pepsi and Chanel and Nike, that that's not the same thing as doing waterbed warehouse commercials. But you haven't worked with the Nike clogs yet. I have not. This is the first I'm seeing. And, and by the way, usually this is how they arrive on the set. You know, they're literally, there's, there's one prototype shoe that you get to do, like you get to do the product shot with. And it's usually like somebody on a plane from Korea, you know, at the last possible minute showing up with a shoe that won't fit on the athlete's foot. And so... That's how it would probably be presented to me. And I would be like pulling my hair out going, why? Why have I done this again? Why did I allow myself to be tricked into this? Some time has passed since then. But could you like recall why it was so alluring to you? Film? Yeah. I loved to paint. I loved to draw. I loved comic books. I loved sculpting with clay. I liked taking pictures and working in a dark room. I liked building sets i liked lighting i liked i mean there was just not there's nothing in the film business except for possibly doing promotional tours that i didn't like to do you know my father was a writer so he was at home a lot to himself with himself and i saw the sort of abject horror of somebody facing a, a blank piece of paper and a typewriter every single morning. And I thought, that is not for me. Like, I, I need to be around other people. And I like the technical nature of trying to impart, in a lot of cases, very subliminal ideas. I was impressed at a very early age. It was impressed upon me, and I was smitten with the idea that I learned about subliminal imagery and I learned about, you know, I remember reading, you know, Hitchcock Truffaut and and reading that, you know, these things that were, seemed like they were something that that I was doing, that was a part of me, that I, that I was evoking, was something that was planned by somebody else months in advance. And if I do this and I get cut away to the shot of the knife on the table, then now I've created this anxiety and tension in the, and I love the idea the the magic trick of that the 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 low magic of it you know getting people to to look one way while you do something else to them I also remember seeing I saw a documentary when on I guess it was on network television and it was about the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which was my favorite movie growing up and I remember watching it and thinking Because I'd always sort of naively thought that movies were shot in real time. <laughs> well, this movie, you know, this this trip that Butch and Sundance are on, this probably took a month, you know, for them to go to all these places. So that's, they probably shot for a month. You know, that was sort of what I assumed. It never occurred to me the three-ring circus that is the making of a movie. And I remember seeing this documentary and just going, wow. They're shipping horses across country. They're building balsa wood trains and blowing them up. They're hanging out with Catherine Ross. This sounds like a pretty good deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Did you try anything else? No. I mean, I was, I did a lot. Of, you know, again, I worked in a dark room. I yeah. swept sound stages. I, I, but it wasn't like you sold. I was not a lawyer. Groceries. I was never. No. no I, but when I was, you know, when I was very young, from the time I was about thirteen till seventeen, you know, I probably worked in fifty restaurants. You know, I, I lived in a, a small town in in southern Oregon when I was in high school, and and I had so many jobs. You know, I worked at a I worked as a projectionist at a movie theater to to be able to watch movies over and over and over. I worked at a news station, you know, doing ENG, electronic news gathering stuff at the barns burning down and sh- shit like that. And if there's anything that four years of being a busboy will teach you, it's you've got to figure out a way to be a director as opposed to a busboy. <laughs> now we're here in a hotel room yep. and you have like 10 interviews today or something like that. I think less. I have less yeah, interviews than perhaps that. Perhaps eight. All right. Yeah. Well, do you enjoy this part of the movie making as well? No, not because it's not nice to meet new people, and not because it's not nice to talk about things that were, you know, part of your sort of formative way of looking at something that you eventually devoted your life to. But mostly because I feel like oftentimes you know, this process devolves into this sort of mitigating against misunderstanding. And and the fact of the matter is movies are made to be seen by other people and to be thought of by other people at a certain point in their development and manufacture. It doesn't matter what I think anymore. It doesn't matter what my intentions were. You know, it only matters what what's translated, what's transmitted. And so for me to sit here and say, you know, well, it's, re- it's intended to be this, it really doesn't, you know, it's like, what was the intention for, yeah. for... You don't like being interviewed at all, or... I don't enjoy it. No. I mean, I don't like listening to people talk about themselves. I can't imagine that anyone, you know, and so I don't... It's one thing for somebody who's a grand thinker and, and a an amazing intellect and somebody who has great insight. But you're, um, you're one of the world's best filmmakers. That's uh, something. I, you know, I extremely humbled by, by your suggesting that, but, but I think that I, I'm, I've done well with the areas that I've chosen to trod, but I also think that a director's job is to take something that is describing something and then figure out how best to translate that so it feels weird to be talking about all the things around that because the film either does that or it doesn't so to me it feels a little overly hubristic to go well it just makes me a little squeamish maybe an idea for the, the next movie is that you let some people watch it and then the press can interview them <laughs> i like that idea About your movie then, these two people, they don't get to work and that sort of makes them depressed and so forth. What happens to you when you don't get to work? When you don't get to work? Yeah. God, I don't know. I, I um, Have you been working all along? Yeah, I've worked a 50 or 60 hour week since I was 14 years old. There was a, there was a year long period when I first moved to Los Angeles where I had... I had tucked away enough savings, I felt, to last me, you know, a year and a half or two years of not being able to find work. And I and I had 
sort of put out my shingle and, and said, I'm a director now and I'm not going to take special effects work and I'm not going to, I'm going to direct television commercials. I'm going to, I'm going to direct music videos and I'm, I have to commit myself to that and I can't be available to do anything less than that because if I, if I am perceived of as a guy who wants to be a director, but will also you know be a visual effects supervisor, or matte photography supervisor, or do whatever, I'll never get to do what I want to do. And it was a, it was a rough eighteen months, and I blew through my savings, and I and I, you know, there was definitely a time where I thought maybe this isn't going to happen, and that was a period of time where I spent a lot of time at the movies, <laughs> a lot of time wandering around, a lot of time reading, and a lot of time, you know, sort of formulating what I was interested in, how I could best sort of sell myself. Were you depressed? But, no, I'm not a depressive person i'm not i mean i'm not i wouldn't describe myself as perky but i don't think of myself as a depressive i'm you know i sort of fuel myself with uh mostly rage and um and that's what gets me out of bed i look at for real i mean i'm i'm being slightly facetious but yeah. no i can almost always find something to be pissed off about that'll make me go ah gotta get to the office and deal with this what is going on i am being funny i i But I've, ne I've never, I mean, I've had probably last, last year around this time, I took seven weeks off and, and my wife and I, we, you know, we went to London and, and we sort of fumbled around New York and, and we escaped for that period of time, basically as we wrapped, no, before we, it was before we went to Missouri to shoot. That was the first time, I mean, I've had like five days off, seven days off. Once, twice a year, maybe, but pretty much, I haven't really. And you, you know, as a director, you're you're always working because you're, you know, I have five screenplays I have to read. You know, I'm kind of looking at it to go. All right, well, was you know, one of them is going to be for a TV show, or one of them is a pilot to a TV show, and you're, and you're always sort of like trying to kind of keep a, a hand in finding new material. So you're always busy doing that. Even you know, even when I'm in the seven weeks we took off last year, and that. That seemed like an eternity for me, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I'm not complaining. I think it's good to work on. What do you have planned ahead? I read this uh, something this morning. Uh, well, I don't normally comment on that stuff. Okay. I think that it's. I'm hoping to do. I'm way past devising a remake of a British television show called Utopia. And Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, wrote the novel and the script is writing that right now and has turned in the first hour and it's so much fun and so exciting. So I'm hoping that'll be next, but you know, you got to budget it and you got to cast it and you got to, it's a big, it's a huge endeavor. It's, it's a very big show. Oh, you're super rich. <laughs> no. <laughs> Would you like to recommend something? Well, you missed out on seeing Nine Inch Nails on the road. So that, that's over with. I would recommend that. What is this restaurant in the in the Grand? It's called Matthias Dahlgren. Yeah, but with the food bar, is that the yeah, one? Yeah, exactly. I recommend that. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> for all... The, but uh, by the way, that should not be news to anyone. No, well, for my uh, listeners abroad. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow, so it was amazing. Come to Stockholm and eat at Matthias Dahlgren's matbaren or mm. the food bar. Yeah. Who would you like me to interview on Varvet International? I think you should interview Eric Roth. Thank you so much for okay. the time. Sure, no problem. 
David Fincher interviewed on Lidmore Hotel in Stockholm, September 2014. And as we spoke about, he did all his Swedish interviews in one day. And I think that we got one of the bigger chunks of that day. So uh, I'm happy about that. And we sort of touched base with uh, a little bit of the early days. His current uh, project, Gone Girl which is uh, something I think you should go see, especially if you haven't read the book, because it's sort of a really interesting uh, change of perspectives in that movie. I won't spoil it any more than that. And his uh, plans for the future, a little bit anyway. So that's it for today. I want to say thank you to Stutterheim uh, Raincoats. That's stutterheim.com. Don't miss that. I'd like to uh, thank the rest of the crew making this podcast. Uh, it's producer Christina Jerling Biro, editor Lovisa Olson, and the theme song producer Maria Marcus. And my name is Christopher Triumph. Talk to you in a week. Then I, I'll be joined by Tignotoro, the comedian who got cancer and uh, went up on stage on Largo in Los Angeles and talked about that. And that ended up in a really, really great comedy record called Live. And we'll talk about that in a week. Take care. Bye bye. Hej då. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 